You know, we've all had that experience. You're watching a TV show and a, a you know, or a new movie and a, you see an actor that you hadn't seen for a while and you go, huh, you know, hadn't realized that he hadn't been around or hadn't played a lead role in, in a while. And I won't try to give you an illustration because what comes to my mind probably doesn't come to yours, right? I, I, wherever we are in, you know, the, what we're watching and seeing. But uh, uh, anyway, I would suggest that perhaps Jacob is a little bit like that. We've been focused on Joseph, 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 and Jacob every now and then, right? Uh, Jacob does this, back to Joseph, back to Jacob, just a bit, cameo appearance, back to Joseph. But, but now, you know, we're going to see Joseph in, in a bigger way, or Jacob, I'm sorry, in a bigger way today. Um, and he's going to reemerge as a dominant player we're going to see that by faith, he's going to make a journey of hope and of dependence into Egypt. You know, the Lord sent Jacob's son Joseph ahead um, to pave the way for Israel and his descendants to grow into a nation. But what would you might think would be an easy choice, right, when uh, Jacob learns that, that Joseph is in Egypt, you know, the easy choice would be to go. Um, but it wasn't necessarily so for Jacob. And so let's look back and recount where we've been uh, to back away a little bit, elevate up, get a more encompassing view. You know, all the Bible, uh, cover to cover, it's, it's got this, main, this one theme, God is redeeming a people by his son, for his son, to his own glory. And certainly our story fits into that. So we've been tracing the work of God in Joseph's life. He's now identified himself to his brothers, much to their shock, much to their dismay. And Joseph now sends them on an errand back to get their father Jacob. So for a little bit of context, let's look at Genesis 45. And starting in verse 16. Now, when the news was heard in Pharaoh's house that Joseph's brothers had come, it pleased Pharaoh and his servants. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this, load your beasts and go to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me. And I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you will eat the fat of the land. Now you are ordered, do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives, and bring your father and come. Do not concern yourself with, the, with your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. Then the sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each of them he gave changes of garments, but to Benjamin he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of garments. To his father he sent as follows, Ten donkeys loaded with the best things of Egypt, and ten female donkeys loaded with grain and bread and sustenance for his father on the journey. So Joseph sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, Do not quarrel on the journey. Then they went up from Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. They told him, saying, Joseph is alive, and indeed he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. But he was stunned and did not believe them. 
when they told him all the words of Joseph that he had spoken to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father, Jacob, revived. Then Israel said, it is enough. My son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Now this transition we're going to make starting at 46, it's been considered the, and called the transition to the Exodus. This 46 through 50 is really the, the what's another word for transition? I don't know. I don't have a thesaurus. But anyway, we'll stick with transition because it works. Right? This, this, this moving into this next stage. We know historically that the nation of Israel needs to be in Egypt. Why? So it can leave Egypt. We know, being on this side of the completion of the canon of scriptures, that is what is going to happen is the fulfillment of Genesis 15, verse 13 and 14, when God said to Abraham, which was Jacob's grandfather, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve and afterward, they will come out with many possessions. Now, Jacob, though initially excited and focused on seeing Joseph, and this is after the shock of learning he's alive, after thinking he's been dead for, for 20 years, he was excited, but he has reason to be hesitant. Egypt was a foreign land. Egypt was not the promised land, the land promised to Abraham, the land promised to Isaac. In fact, Jacob was already in the land of promise, even though they did not yet possess it. So, going to our outline, we're going to look at the preparation to go. And we're going to look at who is going. Notice the name, verse 1. So Israel set out with all that he had and came to Beersheba. Israel. We saw the name used at the end of chapter 45 as well. And again here in 46, the shift where Jacob is known as Israel, Israel is known as Jacob. And here we see the shift referring to the nation God is going to make out of Jacob. Kenneth Matthew says, the importance of the name Israel is its national implications for the move of the family to Egypt. Interplay of the two names of the patriarch in verse 2, 5, 8 exhibits his role as the eponymous ancestor of the nation. The origin of the name Israel reinforces the promises and provision of God as the patriarch faces another challenge. That word eponymous, I had to look it up. When a, when a commentator uses it, and I don't understand it, I, if I don't understand it, there's probably another, at least one other in the room that doesn't. Eponymous just means that when something is named after something, like America is named after Amerigo Vespucci, right? So that's an eponymous word. And here... The nation of Israel is named after Jacob when his name is changed. So it, we're talking about 
Jacob, we're talking also about the nation that's going to be formed out of Jacob's descendants. The name Jacob itself, though we didn't look at it as steadfasters, we know that, that Jacob had a rough start. Um, the name Jacob means one who supplants. You remember he was the heel grabber, right, who grabbed Esau at birth. Esau even reinforced this in Genesis 27, 36, when Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Now Jacob, we know that he wrestled with God. And that's when he got his name changed in chapter 32. And it's clear that Jacob's character was undergoing a major change. Genesis 32, 28. God said to him, Your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. So, where is Israel going? And what is he going to do? He's hesitant, but he initiates his trip. Better he gets his, his peace in place on the board to start, right? And where does he go? He goes to Beersheba, right? He's been in Hebron, and he's going to Beersheba. Now, why Beersheba? That, you know, but he goes, makes a short journey, and stops. Well, it's a place familiar to him and to his descendants. It's a place to seek the Lord, a place where the Lord had met his descendants on many occasions. It's a notable site about 25, 25 miles southwest of Hebron, and it was a favorite place of his ancestors. Recall Abraham, um, Genesis 21:27. Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two of them made a covenant. Verse 31, therefore he called that place Beersheba, because the two of them took an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba, and Abimelech and Phicol, and the commander of his army, arose and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree at Beersheba, and there he called on the name of, the, of God, of his Lord, name of the Lord, the everlasting God. So he had actually named this place. That was Abraham. Isaac, chapter 26, uh, that whole context, 18 to 25. But, but what we have here is just recalling our, our, our history a little bit, Old Testament history. The, the herdsmen of Gerar and, and his herdsmen were quarreling and the, over the water. And, uh, you know... Isaac ends up moving away, verse 23, then he went up from there to Beersheba. The Lord appeared to him that same night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there and there Isaac's servants dug a well. 
Now, in our context today, in our text today, I don't believe Jacob thought there was anything necessarily mystical about Beersheba, but it was an act of acknowledging his need for God's guidance and to do it in a place of historical significance. It was also at the southern end of the land, and thus the, uh, perhaps the no-turning-back spot um, should they continue on towards Egypt. Beersheba is there on the right edge of that red line, and then they, from there, they're basically out of the land, headed west to Egypt. Yes, Jacob had questions. Jacob had concerns. Though initially eager to see Joseph, he must have been remembering the challenges in Egypt that had been before him. Those Remember, Abraham stumbled badly in Egypt, right? Abraham, uh, in Genesis 12, 13, you remember this, to Sarai, he said, Please say that you're my sister, so it may go well with me because of you, and that I may live on account of you. It came about when Abram came into Egypt... The Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Therefore he treated Abraham well for her sake and gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Also during an earlier famine... Isaac had been forbidden to go to Egypt. In Genesis 26, verse 1, Now there was a famine in the land, besides the previous famine that had occurred in the days of Abraham. So Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. The Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Stay in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and bless you, for to you and your descendants I will give you all these lands, and I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven, and will give your descendants all these lands, and by your descendants all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abram obeyed me and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac lived in Gerar. So Jacob is already in the land. And also he might have recalled the foretelling to Abraham that we spoke of earlier. Genesis 15, 13, God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. These things Jacob took to heart. Kenneth Matthew writes, He cannot risk his family in Egypt unless the Lord leads him. So Jacob is here at Bathsheba and he offers sacrifices. Verse 1 continues, and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. Appreciating the lineage of his ancestors, he does this. Let me see where I am, and I'm looking at this, and I'm ahead of myself on my slides. 
We're just going to call that good and go on. If it looks close, we're good. All right. He offered sacrifices. Now, what exactly were these sacrifices? You know, many commentators just kind of move on without really commenting about it. Um, and I could understand why. It's kind of hard to know exactly what was going on. It's before the Levitical sacrifices, right? It's before, before the law and the, the sacrifices prescribed. But commentator Kenneth Matthew does take a go. He says, Jacob's worship is an act of declaration and petition. Jacob offers sacrifices while in the land to symbolize, symbolize his continued place in the covenant made to his fathers. Jacob's worship precedes the revelatory speech of God, Jacob announced his intention, I will go and see Joseph, but it will be no, to no avail if he's not accompanied by the Lord. Perhaps what is most important is not what are the sacrifices, but to whom are the sacrifices given. And he offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. Isaac's God was Jacob's God. Abraham's God was Isaac's God, was Jacob's God. The I am, the ever-present, omniscient, uh, immutable, unchanging, promise-keeping God. And God heard and God spoke. What God said on our outline. God spoke to Israel in night, in visions of the night, and said, Jacob... Jacob, the double announcement of the name, reminiscent of Abraham, Abraham, when the call of God on, during Abraham's test while sacrificing Isaac, recall Moses, Moses at the burning bush, the double announcement gives emphasis, it even expresses intimacy, and here, Jacob, Jacob, and Jacob said, here I am, here I am, should be our response as well to the word of God, here I am. Jacob had replied with the same response previously in Genesis 31, in fact, meeting God was not uncommon to Jacob. Scripture records this is his seventh time to have an encounter with God. And regarding visions of the night, one commentator says, this nocturnal event is the only place in Genesis that the mode is specifically said to be a vision versus a night dream or simply an appearance in the night. And the plural indicates intensity. It's an important vision. And in response to Jacob's reply in verse 3, God says, God said to him, I am God, the God of your father. Again, God himself affirming this spiritual uh, heritage of the promise. And he says, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. Why? For I will make you a great nation. Where? There. It was the same promise that God had originally given to Abraham, 12.2, 
And I will make you a great nation. I'll bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. It was reinstated in chapter 17 and again in chapter 18. Yes, God would make a nation. But according to Kent Hughes, as he speaks, the fresh revelation here to Jacob was that his family would become a great nation there. Astonishingly, Israel would not become a great nation in the land of promise, but on the pagan Nile. This was amazing but encouraging. Great things would come out of his move to Egypt, thus he must not fear. And what else did God say? I will go down with you to Egypt. God is extending his assurance of being with Jacob. This is a continuation of the promise God had made to him in the first encounter with God. And we might remember it as the Jacob's Ladder event. Genesis 28, verse 12. Jacob had a dream, and behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Verse 15 of chapter 28, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. I'll bring you back to this land For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Kent Hughes says, God knows no territorial constraints. He was with Jacob in Mesopotamia and likewise in Canaan. And now in Egypt, it would be the same, not to fear. Now, not only did God promise to go down with with Jacob, but also... I will also surely bring you up again. This too connects us to the promise made during Jacob's latter experience. Verse 15 of chapter 28. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. In verse 4 of our text, it's emphatic. I will surely bring you up again so this trip to Egypt is just that it's a trip it's not permanent now it is a long trip 400 years and Jacob is going to come back in a casket now that sounds maybe a bit morbid but it stresses that the promise to Jacob is bigger than Jacob it's a promise to the nation that God would build out of Jacob this lineage of of Israel and I love the string of I wills this this is our God Kenneth Matthew says the patriarch's God is an I will God as God has said I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people you know this is reinstated in, in Leviticus it's in Jeremiah It's in Ezekiel. It's also in 2 Corinthians. This God will be with his people. 
And there's a one final I will, though it's delegated to Joseph. Verse 4, Joseph will close your eyes. Now this is quite a promise to the aged Jacob. You know, we, we saw in the previous text on previous Sundays that his, his expression of fear that he was going to die a sorrowful death. But now assured, he need not fear. Joseph would be by his side. His death would be peaceful, his eyes gently closed by his beloved son. And this promise is assurance that Joseph was indeed alive. And would be alive for as long, at least as long as Jacob is alive. So in response, what did Jacob do? Verse 5, Jacob arose from Beersheba. He arose, he's calmed, he's assured, he's encouraged, and he's directed by God. He arose from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried their father Jacob and their little ones and their wives in the wagons which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. But not just the little ones and wives, but verse 6, they took their livestock and their property which they had acquired in the land of Canaan, and they came to Egypt, Jacob and all his descendants with him, his sons and his grandsons with him, his daughters and his granddaughters, and all his descendants he brought with him to Egypt." Now, these redundancies in these three verses just underscores the magnitude and the comprehension, comp completeness of the traveling party. This is Jacob's entire household moving to Egypt. And that brings us to the people to go. We're going to call this the 70. Jump down to verse 26 and 27. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came to Egypt, his direct descendants, not including the wives of Jacob's sons, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came to Egypt were 70. Now just a reminder of the family tree of, of Jacob, his wives, the concubines, and the 12 sons. Now this, I will say this, exactly sorting out the math for 70 is not easy to do. I'll read you what Kent Hughes writes. Because the event was so monumentous, the writer gives an extended list of the 70 who went down to Egypt. The list has definite symmetries. Both Leah and Rachel bear twice as many descendants as their maids. Leah has 33, her maid Zilpah 16. Rachel has 14, and her maid Bilhah has 7. The numbers 33 plus 16 plus 14 plus 7 equals 70, verse 27. However, the writer notes that only 66, in verse 26, made the trip because Er and Onan were buried in Canaan, verse 12, and Joseph and Manasseh and Ephraim were already in Egypt, verse 27. This equals 65, so evidently Dinah, verse 15, must have added to get 66. He goes on to say, confusing? Gets even more so when we see that Exodus 1.5 lists 70, but excludes Jacob from the calculation. But Deuteronomy 10.22 includes him in the number. So he goes on to say, this virtually 
Thus, virtually all the major commentators agree with Nahum Sarna that there is no way of satisfactorily solving the problem and reconciling the differences unless 70 is, a, is understood here to be a typological rather than a literal number. It is used here as elsewhere in biblical literature to express the idea of totality. Thus, it reiterates in another way the point made in verse 1 and in 6 and 7, emphasizing the comprehensive nature of the descent to Egypt because this event is seen as the fulfillment of Genesis 15, 13. I think I, I, I'm good with that, right? The emphasis is not on the number, <laughs> but the event. Matthew says that these few became a burgeoning multitude reflected God's blessing of his people, Israel. Now, in verses 8 down to uh, 26, you, it's a long laundry list of names I can't pronounce, and I won't try, but it, it lists Jacob, his, his wives, the, and uh, the concubines, and, and the sons. But I did want to point out... Um, and look at the line of Judah in that list. Verse 12, look at it with me. The sons of Judah, Er and Onan and Shelah and Perez and Zerah, but Er and Onan died in the land of Canaan, and the sons of Perez, or Perez were Hezron and Hamel, now, that's, that's an interesting list. Er and Onan, the text says, died in Canaan, and yes, they did. We didn't study Genesis 38 as it was, you know, we were looking, focusing on the life of Joseph, so we just kind of skipped over it and kept going. And, you know, it was a bit of a diversion in the life of the, of the tale of, of Joseph, but it's not a, a diversion when you're looking at redemptive history. And let's look at Genesis 38. Verse 1. And it came about at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. Judah saw that there was a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her and went into her. So she conceived and bore a son and named him Er. Right? There's heir from our list. Then she conceived again and bore a son and named him Onan. Another name from the list. She bore another son and named him Shelah from our list. And it was at Chezeb that she bore him. Now Judah took a wife for heir, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But heir, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord took his life. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so when he went into his brother's wife, he wasted his seed on the ground in order not to give offspring to his brother. But what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord took his life also. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up for he thought I'm afraid that he too might die like his brothers so Tamar went and lived in her father's house 
Now after a considerable time, Shua's daughter, the wife of Judah, died, and when the time of mourning was ended, Judah went up to his sheep shearers at Timnah, he and his friend, Hira the Edomite. It was told to Tamar, Behold, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she removed her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapped herself, sat in the gateway of Enon, which is on the road to Timnah, for she saw that Shelah had grown up, and she had not been given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot, for she had covered her face. So he turned aside to her by the road and said, Here now, let me come into you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He said, Therefore, I will send you a young goat from the flock. She said, Moreover, will you give me a pledge until you send it? He said, What pledge shall I give you? And she said, Your seal and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and departed and removed her veil and put on her widow's garments. Verse 20. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Edomite, to receive the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. He asked the men of the place, saying, Where is the temple prostitute who was by the road at Enon? But they said, There was, has been no temple prostitute here. So he returned to Judah and said, I did not find her. And furthermore, the men of the place said, There has been no temple prostitute here. Then Judah said, Let her keep them. Otherwise, we will become a laughingstock after all. Or a laughingstock. After all, I sent this young goat, but you did not find her. Verse 24, now it was about three months later that Judah was informed, your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the harlot, and behold, she is also with child by harlotry. Then Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. It was while she was being brought out that she sent to her father-in-law saying, I am with child by the man to whom these things belong. And she said, please examine and see whose signet ring and cords and staff are these. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, inasmuch as I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not have relations with her again. It came about at the time she was given birth that, behold, there were twins in her womb. Moreover, it took place while she was given birth, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first, but it came out, it came about as, but it came about as he drew back his hand that behold, his brother came out. Then she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. So she named him Perez. And afterward, his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand and he was named Zerah. Okay, Rod. Wow. Why read such a story? Though biblical, for us today. Why, why do this? I wanted to read it because it tells us a lot about our God. How so? Well, if you look at our text today, verse 12, the sons of Judah, Er and Onan, and Shelah and Perez and Zerah, but Er and Onan died in the land of Canaan, and the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamel. Now, if you go to the story of Boaz and Ruth in the book of Ruth chapter 4 verses 18 and following we find this now these are the generations of Perez to Perez was born Hezron 
And to Hezron was born Ram, and to Ram Abinadab, and to Abinadab was born Nation, and to Nation Salmon. And to Salmon was born Boaz, to Boaz Obed, to Obed was born Jesse, and to Jesse David. Jump over to Matthew 1, looking at the genealogies there. Verse 6, Jesse was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, now I'm going to just start skipping. Asa, Jehoshaphat, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, Manasseh, Ammon, Josiah, Jeconiah, Sheltiel, Zerubbabel, Abihud, Eliakim, Azar, Zadok, Achim, Eliud was the father of Eleazar, the father of Mathan, the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called Messiah. What's the point? The God of grace was not and is not ashamed to, to use the train wreck of Genesis 38 to bring about the incarnation of the Messiah. We'll use that as our first point of application today. It's just God's, God's amazing grace. And speaking of this event, and of Tamar in particular, Brad Bigney writes, God's grace and mercy are not a puddle, not a pond, but a bottomless ocean, vaster and deep. So no one reading these words is beyond the reach of God's grace. No matter what you've done, where you've been, or what's been done to you, God's grace is greater. His kingdom has room for you as an adopted son or daughter, and he has seat for you at his banquet table of grace. Another application from our study today is it's not too late to begin to live by faith again. That's the lesson from, from Jacob, right? We, we see him now emerging uh, as a man of faith. So if, you know, if we find ourselves in a slide, we need a branch to grab onto, or a rock to grasp, something to stop the slide so that we can regroup and start to climb. Jacob, in renewed faith, sought his God and found him. And God said he would be with Jacob. Now, we have the same promise, not by night visions, but we have the revealed word of God. And it says these things that encourage our hearts. Matthew 1.23, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Psalm 46.7, the psalmist says, The Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our stronghold. Isaiah 41.10, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Galatians 2, Paul writes, I've been crucified with Christ. 
It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself for me. Christ promises himself, Matthew 28, 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Yes, our Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You know, we don't need a latter experience, but we've got the word of a gentleman. He is with us. And Father, we are so thankful that you are. We thank you that your promises are sure. Your assurances are what we can rest in, Father, and we are thankful that, that you are gracious when we approach you humbly. Father, we see in history, Father, that you take train wrecks and turn them into, into just your sovereign will. Though you are not responsible for evil, Father, you are indeed able and do use it to your glory and our good. Father, no matter where we are today, Father, may our hearts be humble before you, just praising you for your promise to be with us and thanking you for your great grace if we've come to you in repentance and faith. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.